like a surgeon. Cutting for the very first time. Uh, what's going on, y'all? It's the Review of Podcast. I'm your co-host, DJ. Oh, I'm your co-host, Evan. And I just got... <laughs> I was like, why? Is it okay? <laughs> Dude, yeah, the first song they talk about in this film... Uh, is like a virgin. Yeah, they, they talk do, about... Yeah, yeah they, they talk about like a virgin and then... Yeah, they do uh, a little rap I, critic analysis. Thing. <laughs> no, this is our first... Uh, this is our first of a new era. What in the new era of what? Quentin Tarantino. Oh right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were talking about something outside of us. <laughs> You're just like, yeah, the new America. Haven't you heard? Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, we're on the new wing of the podcast. That's right. Uh, this is the podcast where we typically look back at the filmmakers that we grew up with as fans, uh, and we talk about the works now that we're like older and you know, know more about the world and shit. Uh, and if you'd like to request a song, movie, or album for uh, me to review, head on over to my Kofi at Kofi.com slash Rap Critic and donate to get your request in, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but yeah, let's get into it. We're starting with Quentin Tarantino. Boom, out of the gate. Reservoir Dogs. God damn. So, so the last four of his movies I've seen, like, in the theater, but everything, um, but the earlier ones... I couldn't tell you when I sat down and watched it because all I remember, I remember scenes. And also, like, the way, and I've definitely seen them all the way through at this point, but I don't remember the first time I sat and watched any of these all the way through versus just seeing, like, the milkshake scene or the, you know, or, like, the this one fight in Kill Bill or, um, or the opening scene of Reservoir Dogs, you know. And the thing is, like, I vaguely remembered the twist. Like I knew, and by the way, big twist, big spoilers. So if you, for whatever reason, you oh, don't yeah, want to yeah. get Reservoir Dogs spoiled, stop now. Um, but yeah, like I, I remember, you know, I definitely had seen that opening scene where they're arguing about tips before because I came in mad about it. <laughs> yeah, okay, so like, all right, this is a fun place to start the conversation. Let, let's go. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so the movie starts, and they're talking about, yeah, uh, it's not about a virgin. I mean, it's not about her actually being a virgin. It's not how she likes dick so much. We're talking much. about Madonna's like a virgin. Yeah, yeah, yeah the guy that she's dick, that's dicking her down is just doing it so good that she feels like a virgin. And, you know, that hints the metaphor, right? Uh, and then they uh, flip into the conversation of, like, you know, all right, hey, everybody's about to, you know, put in for, for uh, you know, the meal, uh, tip for the meal before they get out. And, you know, uh, fucking Steve Buscemi he goes like, oh, no, I won't do it. You know, I don't tip. And now, here's my thing, okay? <laughs> um, I, I always, like, when I first saw this movie, I, I always remember being like, hey, you know, he, I mean, he has a point. Does he not, right? Like, you know, the, people are coming down on him, of course, because, you know, yeah, it's the custom to tip, right? Like, you fucking do it. Now, I will say this, though. In the context of what's happening in this scene... He's getting his fucking breakfast paid for. And, and I think all he got was a fucking coffee, right? And they're asking him to put in one dollar. Motherfucker, you could put down one goddamn dollar. And you're a bunch of fucking jewel heisters who are about to fucking, you know, steal some money illegally anyway. Like, you're gonna have some bread. So, like, on a yeah. very character basis, no, motherfucker. Put in the one goddamn dollar. But when I think about it on that sort of, like, you know, uh, grand picture scheme of things, right? It is that sort of sense of, like... It does suck that the position that we're ultimately left with is saying like, oh, it it, it is awful that, you know, um, this is the one, uh, uh, you know, business that's available or, you know, a, a lot of like jobs that are specifically available to women are paid less. And this one so much so that like, you know, that person has to like, you know, make up for it. But it's like, that really is a thing that sucks. It needs to be changed like ASA fucking P, right? Like, yeah. and I well, hate that so, idea okay, that we... So that we push things off, and this was a big thing in the 90s too, right? Like, of pushing off the things that need to be done and making it an individual, like, thing to do instead of a specific thing that we all know is an issue and should be addressed. You know what I mean? Like, instead yeah, of, like... Because yeah. he says at one point, like, hey, if there's a law, you know, to vote for it and get them money, I'll vote for it. But, like, I'm not... It's like, but what I'm not going to do is play ball, you know? <laughs> yeah, so so here's here was my thing on it. My original... Um, cause I, I definitely have seen this movie before, although I don't remember 
anything about it. Um, but I remember this because I was so annoyed that he was saying like, well, you know, these girls aren't starving. They're making minimum wage. And when I made yeah, minimum wage, both. I didn't get tipped. And I was like, well, and, and well, I was mad because I was like, no, they don't fucking make minimum wage. Servers yeah, don't make minimum thing. wage. Yeah. Now, now what I found out later was actually in California. So good on California. In California, servers do actually make minimum wage. It is illegal they, they for restaurants to. the least to... amount that you can legally pay them. Yay. But, but <laughs> in mo pretty much everywhere else in the U.S., mm. if you're a server, you make like $2 an hour and right. then that gets tipped. And so, or that, that gets taxed. So you essentially make no money. Like when I was a server, so like I didn't sad. get what a paycheck. What is that about? Like, why right. is so, that like, allowed to happen in the because first place? The, because the idea is that, and, and this is the thing is like why I think it's it's so fucked up when people don't tip because they're like, well, it's a gratuity. It's supposed to be for ex extra good services. Like, okay, unless you're in Cal if you if you're in California and you don't tip, you're just an asshole. But if you are anywhere else and you don't tip a server who's making two dollars an hour, you're a thief. Because this is what I'm saying. Like, if you're somewhere else and somebody is laboring for you, they're bringing you your food, they're doing work for you, and you don't tip them. That's like you hire somebody to come mow your lawn and they mow your lawn and then you refuse to pay them. But, That's what that yeah. is. They did a job for you. You didn't pay for the job. So now they just did that job for free because they're not fucking getting a paycheck. Yeah. Now, it is technically illegal. Like technically what restaurants are supposed to do is that if somebody's tips shake out to equal less than minimum wage over the course of a pay period, the restaurant's supposed to make that up. But they fucking don't. Yeah, but they so fucking like, don't. But doesn't that suck ass that it's just like, now you, the individual, should feel bad for what they should be and doing? It, <laughs> well, and it and it sucks, but it's like, here's the thing. The nature of the beast. Like, yes, it's, it's shitty that the businesses, the restaurants get to sort of, you know, palm off the responsibility of paying servers right. onto, um, onto the customer. Like, that's, that's fucked up. However... If you choose to go out to eat knowing that that mm, is the reality right. and you don't pay for the service being rendered to you, then you're still a thief. It's yeah. like, it doesn't matter if like, you know, the, if you like, if you like get, you know, in an Uber and then somehow manage to not pay the Uber driver, well, you're still fucking stealing from them even if it's not fair that Uber doesn't treat their contractors right. like actual employees and pay them like right. you still need to fucking pay for them yeah i guess <laughs> you know? like it, this is the example like it reminded me of like uh, yeah when i said like in the 90s like with corporations you know where they're like they're fundamentally causing the bulk of all pollution right but w mm -hmm. remember you know what all we heard all throughout the 90s was hey kids pick up your pick up that trash can and recycle that tree the future begins with you and there me. Is, you know so <laughs> i i see the comparison but i think there's also a pretty significant difference because the fact is like so we have this real problem global warming there is even if everybody on earth were to like go vegan and stop showering and recycle all their stuff right. and like never drive anywhere again it still wouldn't solve the problem if the corporations were still behaving the same way yeah so we're talking about a big massive problem that individual contribution to is negligible and it's the corporations that need to change so that's a little different because mm. literally like if you're going out to eat, even if it's philosophically unfair for the server not to be getting paid more by the restaurant, you still, in that one-on-one -on -one interaction, like, it's not like saying, well, the real problem is people not tipping. Because the fact is, like, again, so I've worked as a server. So the difference is, like, if everybody on Earth behaved perfectly, but corporations kept doing the shit they're doing, then global warming would still be happening however mm. if everybody tips well even though it's unfair that the restaurants aren't paying servers the servers are still making good money and at the end of the day the point is not ripping off the people yeah. who are working and serving your food and i feel like it's also like not that big an injustice it's <laughs> like you know it's it's like it's not the only reason that i think it is an injustice yeah. is because is because when people don't tip servers don't get paid right. but i think that like you know people choose to work as a server sometimes when they have other options because it can be really good money if mm. you do it right and so you know if you're a server you're making good money 
I don't think it's at the end of the day a huge injustice that the person who's choosing to go out and enjoy a nice meal that somebody brings to them has to pay for that service instead of the restaurant. It's like, okay, you know, because restaurants have very small profit margins. Mm. Um, and, and, and like, I, I'm just saying, like, going back to that, like you said, the individualistic basis is like, on an individual level, it's just like, what great injustice, right, your point, is rendered upon you by you willingly going to a place knowing full well, like, what the custom is and deciding to, like, you know, buck back against that. You know, what, because you're like, oh, well, I only wanted to spend this amount and I didn't want to spend that because I'm not paying for that. I'm paying for the food. Right. right. Like, like you could drink it, coffee at home. Nobody is saying, like, yeah, if that's you want the coffee, point. you have to come and give several dollars to yeah. this lady. Like, right, you know? right, right. And so it's like, yeah, you if, if it is such a cost issue for you, then you can just strip yourself away from that thing in the first place and yeah make your own goddamn coffee at home uh yeah like the one time when i was i was waiting tables at a diner and the one time that i had sympathy for somebody was this woman was in from out of town i don't remember what was going on with her exactly like i think somebody in her life was like in the hospital or like she there was some kind of like job situation it was something where she was there sort of not by her own choice and she was far away from home and she came in the diner because she just needed somewhere to sit for a while and she had like no money and she like counted out enough to buy a like a plain bagel with no cream cheese on it and a cup of coffee like and she like counted out change and I was like I'm not expecting a tip from this woman and I'm not mad at her because whatever the hell she's going through and she was like very little trouble but at the same time proportionality yeah but at the same time like I had people who would come and like order like fancy expensive meals and drinks and blah 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 and tip for shit I had people when I was delivering pizzas which you know is a slightly different thing because I was making minimum wage but then I was also like burning my own gas and not getting reimbursed for that and I had people who would like order fucking $200 worth of pizza for a fucking party and then not tip and it's like you know you, yeah. you decided to do that you could have like gone and got some snacks from the gas station you know yeah, yeah. um so anyway <laughs> now, that's now, 20 minutes on steve buscemi's character <laughs> being a dick you know i mean for for the point of fact that it is like a very conversation heavy starter of a movie I, I think that's a good thing to spend a yeah. lot of time on so, you know <laughs> um, so only slightly related but you know it, this was like a weird thing to me was that so quentin tarantino plays a minor character in this yeah yeah um Mr. Blue, no, Mr. Blue is the old one. Um, he's he's Mr. Blonde. No, Mr. No, Blonde no, is Michael Mr. Blonde's Madsen. The Who's Quentin Tarantino? Qu- uh, Mr. Brown, Mr. Brown. Yeah, right? yeah. So he Mr. has the opening monologue, but nothing else, I don't think. Right. So Mr. Brown, like he's talking about Madonna and all this, and the way the camera is moving, it's like moving around behind his head, and then it'll kind of shoot from in front of him, but somebody's el- somebody else's head is blocking the way, and it almost felt at first like it was intentionally obscuring his face and like we weren't allowed to see his face or like well, you, you know he's we were... like as the director he's trying to integrate himself into the movie right to be i like, guess you know. i i don't know i found it distracting and maybe it was different in 19 because this was his first movie so maybe like yeah. in 1992 it was a little different yeah. but like in 1992 if nobody knew who he was i i don't know what effect that was going for because to me, it was very distracting that it felt like this person's face was being intentionally hidden. And then we see him and it's like, okay, there's that guy. And he's talking like there was nothing. Yeah. I don't know. I just I wasn't early, sure. If early that was... film trick thing that I think he's just doing. But it was. But I didn't see what the trick was. I was like, yeah. what is the what is this doing? And I was also thinking about what, uh, you know, the slow-mo. Uh, at the beginning that I remember being so much more like fluid than it ends up being, Mm -hmm. you know, because I think like, you know, it's one of those things I think like with graphics, like with video games or, or, or we're spoiled now. Yeah. 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 And so like now our eyes are more attuned to see how like that wasn't that fluid. It is kind of like choppy when you look at it now, you know, like the scene of them walking, which is supposed to look so like cool. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, yeah, it it has a bit of age to it in that effect. And also Quentin Tarantino trying to look cool in those fucking awkward ass glasses. (laughs) He's trying to be the cool guy in this fucking group. So, so legit. Like you can see him doing it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I want to just real quick go over the cast because it's an amazing cast. Oh yeah. Um, and so so we've got and and also i want to note like at the table all of the the mr color guys are wearing these like you know very striking black suits um and 
you know, and we see them later when they're like running around in downtown Los Angeles, I think it is. And they really stand out like sore thumbs. Like yeah. it's it's a very like weird look for that place. And so it, it really does not make them blend in at all. But they're all wearing these black suits, except the two characters who are not are nice guy. Eddie played by Chris Penn, who's yeah. uh, Sean Penn's late brother and uh, Joe Cabot. Um, played by Lawrence Tierney, who's the the old bald guy, um, and they we later find out are father and son. And I think I think nice guy Eddie's wearing like a bowling shirt, and and Lawrence Tierney's wearing like a pastel like button down. So they're not in those suits. I just but... remember him wearing like the jogging jacket later on. Yeah, yeah, he yeah he's got kind of a Guido look. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we've got Mr. Brown is Quentin Tarantino. Mr. Blonde is Michael Madsen. Mm. Mr. Pink is Steve Buscemi. Mr. Orange yeah. is Tim Roth. Uh, Mr. White is Harvey Keitel. Mr. Blue is Edward Bunker. Uh, yeah, and I think yeah, and so it's here. yeah, so it's the five of them. Um, and I'll say it and like I, I just want to say that I feel like five, Steve Buscemi's character six. is like the smartest motherfucker in the movie. Am I wrong here? Like he's, yeah. I mean, he's the, he's the, he's the survivor. He's, he's the, the only one who goddamn know, he... keeps his composure and everyone else is supposed to be a professional. He does. He, he does kind of, I don't know. I think he like, he loses his cool at a few points. And I think it's kind of played for irony where he like, pulls a gun really fast or gets kind of head up and um and, and he's like saying Harvey like Kytel's i'm a professional like nobody else is a professional when he's acting kind of spazzy yeah. but, but doesn't um, start like kicking him at one point and that's when they pull the guns out it's just like okay you've just been kicking him for like a, a couple of seconds well yeah yeah, yeah. i mean so harvey Keitel's character well okay we should he, we should probably uh, okay yeah yeah the way the film yeah. unfolds right it's you know oh so, immediate so, stress yeah yeah, it's a great the the timing on this is great. So we've got um so we've got the diner scene where they all you know, they're they're going to pull some kind of heist job and then it immediately cuts to Tim Roth's character bleeding in the back of a car. Uh, Mr. Orange bleeding in the back of a car and screaming while Harvey Keitel, Mr. White, is driving him and trying to like and like holding his hand and trying to talk him down and trying to calm him down and he's going to drive him somewhere. And and this is important. Um, Mr. Orange, Tim Roth, is calling Mr. White Larry. He's calling yeah. his name. He's yeah. calling his name. Mm-hmm. And I felt like Tim Roth, it was, it's a little weird. And I think a lot of it was just that he's, you know, screaming and grunting and in pain because he's been shot. But I felt like Tim Roth was doing a Bobcat Goldthwait impression. He's like, (laughs) oh my God, I've been shot. Like he sounded, he sounded like Bobcat Goldthwait to me and I couldn't get over Uh, that. The next time you see me getting beat by the cops, which could happen, put down the camera and help me. Yeah. Um God, I love Bob Kegelblade, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no. But he uh yeah, but so Tim Tim Roth, uh, Mr. Orange is in the back of the car bleeding, he's been gut shot, so he's in, in bad trouble and Mr. White's trying to talk talk to him and Yeah, he said, You're gonna be okay, you're gonna be okay <laughs> Right. And uh and and ends up driving him to this warehouse that so my wife was watching this with me and she realized she was like, What is that place? What is that place? And she realized at first we thought like it was an old hospital or something because it looks kind of medical. And then she saw mm. these coffins stand, these like shrink wrapped coffins that it's, it's like a morgue or something. Oh, it, place where most of the movie the takes back. place. It, it's, yeah. Yeah. It was yeah, weirdly. So, oh, oh, with the things that were wrapped. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Those yeah. were coffins. Yeah. I didn't notice. I did. I wasn't even like registering them. I think I thought they were like doors that were freestanding or something. And my wife pointed out there were coffins. Um, so, so Mr. White gets Mr. Orange to the rendezvous point that is this sort of, uh, you know, closed morgue or, or coffin yeah. shop or something. I don't know. Um, and and puts him and. OK, so my wife, who's you know a veteran, she's had you know first aid training and stuff. And she's sitting there the whole time going like, well, you shouldn't put him like that. Now yeah. he's going to bleed out faster. You need to elevate his feet. And um, yeah, see, It felt like something should have been happening. Yeah, I was like. Yeah, for some reason, Mr. White thinks it's a good idea to put Mr. Orange, like, head up on, like, this inclined thing. So he's, like, slipping and sliding all around (laughs) in his blood, and it's it's a mess. Um, And... 
And then Mr. Pink shows up and starts freaking out. And none of them, Joe is supposed, Joe is the guy that hired them. He's supposed to be meeting them, but they don't know where he is. They can't get a hold of him. And so it's Mr. Pink, Mr. Orange, and Mr. White. And they're saying, like, the cops showed up out of nowhere. And yeah, Mr. Blonde, who's soon. Michael Madsen, yeah. started shooting everybody. And, um, and, and what they you know, suspect and is if, if someone, if the cops were alerted that quickly, then someone must be a rat. Someone must have tipped them off. Right, right. So they're so they're just in full on like paranoia crisis. Mr. Orange is bleeding out, dying. Um, Mr. Pink is like, where's the rat? Mr. White is like worried about Mr. Orange because he feels like clearly very friendly and protective toward him. Yeah. And, and I, like as I watched the movie, like I, it always kind of like just niggled at me. The, uh, uh, Harvey Keitel's character It was like, OK, he's supposed to be a professional, right? Like, a, you know, pro- hardened criminal to some extent, right? Like, this guy does jobs, you know what I'm saying? And he's an older gentleman, right? Like, you think he's like, oh, I know, you know, this business. And now, like, the thing about it is, like, but he sees this guy that he got close to get shot, you know, and, and, and like... Yeah, he's not a psychopath. Yeah, yeah. It, it, like, it softens him Mr. in Blonde. the moment. <laughs> right, right. And it softens him in the moment. I understand that. But it's just like, he just... It, to me, it feels like he goes just a little too over, like... Uh, uh, being the I'm the good guy character in this like relative scenario because it's like okay I get revealing your name to the guy who got shot but he almost revealed his name to fucking uh, Steve Buscemi's character for no reason and it's just like yeah I feel like that was just I mean here's the thing what I will say about Mr. White is you know he's a thief he's he's a thief he's a he's a burglar he's not you know or like possibly you know a stick-up guy but like he's not a killer he's not an assassin so it's understandable that like violence like that level of violence and people getting killed and and, you know keep in mind also like not only like he just saw the guy he was working with just start mowing people down um you know he was getting shot at his friend got shot and shot the woman who shot him um, which we haven't seen yet, but like, yeah. you know, it's it's a situation that would rattle anybody. And I think him being That's a true. career thief doesn't mean that he'd be more, you know, that he'd be cool in a bloodbath. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Um, yeah, so. But Steve Buscemi is just concerned with like, I don't want to be here. Right. The cops might be coming. Yeah. Where's you know? the boss? If he's not here, then, you know, what if the cops are, you know, have been, you know, alerted and we should like fucking jet, you know, like. Mm-hmm. And all the while, now, Steve Buscemi, I believe, he has the diamonds. And, because he's the one who got away with them. And he's like, you know, he's saying like, okay, where's the diamonds? He's like, well, hey, I'm not saying where they are until, you know, we can get more of a consensus on where everybody is. Because I don't know who's the brat. So, you know, let's get that figured out first. And, um, mm-hmm. now, a- as things go on, like, uh, more people do come up, right? Because uh, I believe... Sean Penn's so, character comes in, right? Like, he's who comes um, in next. Yeah. yeah, so Nice Guy Eddie, it's uh, Chris Penn, Sean Penn's brother. Oh, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Nice nice Guy Eddie does show up, but Mr. Blonde shows up first. Oh, so Mr. Yes. Blonde, and, and I, so I'm not necessarily remembering in the right order when the different flashbacks happen and how those are interspersed with this. Yeah, it is hard so to that, fluidly remember what happens because it does, like, just pull you out of time so many times. Right. So we've got, you know, the the sort of what's happening in the present, quote unquote, and then we have flashbacks. So we get a flashback first to Michael. It's I think Harvey Keitel's character actually gets the first flashback. You know, he's old thief. He's friends with Joe and Joe says, hey, I'm going to hire you for this job. It's five man, you know, five man diamond heist. No big deal. Whatever. They make the deal. So that's the first one we see. And then we later see a flashback with Michael Madsen's character, Mr. Blonde, who's just gotten out of prison, um, served four years of prison um, because he didn't roll on Joe Cabot's character. Right. Clearly, he had a bunch um, of hot items and he didn't he didn't snitch. Right. So. You know, so Joe's a like some kind of mafia type guy. He's you know he's a organized criminal, very successful. Nice guy Eddie is his son, um, and and clearly there is just a lot of love and loyalty between Mr. Blonde and the other and and Joe Cabot and Nice Guy Eddie because Mr. Blonde you know went to prison for them yeah. for four years, and so they're trying to take care of him and they put him on the job because they think this is going to be an easy in and out. 
Um, and Mr. Pink and Mr. White are very wary of Mr. Blonde because they basically just saw him just easily start shooting people. Yeah. Um, and they think he's a psychopath and they're right. Um, so they're very, they're very, uh, they're very nervous when he shows up. If and they hadn't also, said what I told him not to do, then I wouldn't have did what I had to do. <laughs> yeah, he's Michael Madsen is so good at just playing, um, and just playing like the really, stoic madman here. <laughs> yeah, I saw him in, um, in that weird like Frankenstein from 2004 with I think Parker Posey. Uh, I don't remember that. That was the last thing I had seen him in, and I was it was driving me crazy. I was like, what have I seen Michael Madsen in? Um, uh, what are, but what are so, the Star Wars movies recently, <laughs> or is that uh, yeah, I haven't seen those. Wait. I, I, <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, so Mr. Blonde shows up. It's established, I believe, that Mr. Blonde and Mr. Blue, um, Miss, Mr. Blonde and Mr. Blue are missing. Um, but Mr. or Mr. Brown and Mr. Blue, so Quentin Tarantino and then the other old guy are missing. Um, but Mr. Blonde shows up and they're all arguing about who's the rat and and how are we going to handle this? Oh, and he shows he he has a great entrance because he walks in right when yeah, um, Mr. Pink and Mr. White are rolling around on the floor, show, like throwing guns at each other. So. Yeah, yeah. And so he looks relatively calm compared to these assholes, right? Like in the moment. You know, well, and he is calm. Like that's part of the issue with Mr. Yeah, Blonde yeah. is that he he's a psychopath, so he's not getting emotional, but he's very dangerous. So he shows up and he's just chilling there. Um, and and Mr. Orange has at this point passed out. Um, he's just he's he's you know just he's not dead, but he's, he's passed out. out. It, he's unconscious. Yeah. Um, and he keeps and tra- so, and earlier in the movie he's telling them, hey, you know, uh, before anyone else gets there, this is important detail too. He tells them like, hey. Just drop me off at the hospital. Just drop me off at the hospital. Like, I don't give a fuck. Like, right. He's asking to go rat. to the hospital. I won't tell anybody. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Right. He's asking to go to the hospital because he knows he's going to die. He's going to bleed out. Yeah. Um, and Michael Madsen. So they argue a little bit. And then Mr. Blonde says, um, hey, I've got a surprise for you. He takes him outside. He's got a cop in his <laughs> right. trunk. And, yeah. the, and they take the cop in and just start beating the shit out of him. And um, this it brings up a very interesting point uh, when, when I was, like, watching it. You know, now as an adult, right? Like, literally, you know, let's just say it. Like, they torture this guy, right? Like, and mm-hmm. partially they torture him at first to get information, right? Like, to get information out of him, you know, to be like, oh, tell mm-hmm. us about this. You know, tell us, you know, who's the guy. And uh, eventually, uh, Chris Penn comes in and, you know, he's just like, what the fuck? What's going on? What are you guys doing? You know, and it's like, oh, yeah, we're trying to, you know, get him to snitch on who, you know, the person was. You know, we're trying to, you know, kick the shit out and see if he'll tell. And then, you know, Chris Penn makes a very salient point, And he goes like, if you beat this guy enough, he'll tell you you started the goddamn Chicago Fire. That don't necessarily make it fucking so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And that is and that I'm is like, actually no. a well-known. That yeah. is actually a well-known issue with torture as an interrogation method. Right. And we saw that. I mean, we like that was something that happened in like the Inquisition and witch trials mm. and stuff because people would confess, quote unquote, to being witches or dancing with the devil or whatever because they were being tortured. Yeah. And when you are being tortured, you don't tell the truth. You tell whatever you think is going to make the torture stop. Right. So, yeah. And they clearly are also just enjoying beating the shit out of a cop, of course. you know, especially after having just gone through you know, being shot at and all. Yeah. Um, and, and now, and what's especially interesting is that like, you know, Michael Madsen's character, he explicitly says after they leave, uh, and it's just him, he goes like, you know, I'm not trying to get any information out of you. If you talk, you talk, but, uh, I'm just, I'm just about to get my jollies for a sec. Like, and like, that is, you know what I'm saying? The, the, the real visceral darkness underneath it. Right. Like the people well, who yeah, want because, to I mean, torture. <laughs> like, and I will say also jobs. like, again, there's a difference between wanting to punch and kick somebody that you're, you know, really mad at. Right. <laughs> and yeah. like for, for lack of a better term, like there's a difference between wanting to just beat somebody up and what Mr. Blonde does cheerfully yeah, and calmly. Him. And he puts on, Oh, and there's there is a sort of a running thing. So Stephen Wright appears in voice only as a as a radio <laughs> DJ, and there's this <laughs> sounds of the sounds '70s of thing the 70s. that we hear throughout. Yeah, yeah, he's got this great, you know, great like low key voice. Yeah. And um and right before Mr. Blonde starts torturing the cop for fun, he um he turns on the radio and it's stuck in the middle with you. Oh yeah, 
And yeah. I actually, don't, when they come back, don't they start playing a, I gotcha, uh-huh, huh? You thought you didn't bet me five, didn't you? <laughs> didn't they that's like that? during one of the, um, that's during one of like the car chase scenes, I feel like that's playing. Oh, okay. I thought it was, uh, damn, now I forget. I might be wrong. I, th- I feel I like I remember that playing. Him. Like... I thought it was when they were like beating him at first. Maybe I might be interested because there was like the them beating him was I think also interspersed with like seeing uh, nice guy Eddie driving. So yeah, maybe yeah. I'm thinking of that. But um, but yeah, the great great soundtrack in this movie. So yeah. Mr. Blonde left alone because um, what is it, Mr. Eddie, Mr. Pink, Mr. White, and nice guy Eddie go to get the diamonds. I think right. Right, Somewhere. that's what they're yeah, yeah yeah. He's in the middle of slicing this guy's ears off ear off. And then he he douses gasoline all over him, and he's clearly yeah. about to immolate him. Right. And Mr. Orange pops up from being apparently unconscious, pops up and shoots him, and yeah. shoots Mr. Blonde. Yes. And so now it's Mr. Orange alone with the cop, and they're able to talk, and we find out that Mr. Orange is a cop. Yeah, he's and, a Yeah, and then we get his, not, not just a rep, but like he's an actual undercover officer, and we get the flashback to him, um, and we get a really long uh, sequence yeah, of flashbacks. I, I will say this part does kind of drag a bit for me, where it's just like, okay, I get it. He's making up the story. I get it. I so to, I enjoyed uh, it just felt like this they were part. Stretching it out just to stretch it out, you know. I yeah, I guess it it does seem kind of long in retrospect compared to like the rest of the movie. But I actually really enjoyed this part, partly because. You know, we've spent so much time. There were some brief flashbacks, but we mostly spent so much time in this, like, you know, You're right. ugly, dingy space yeah. uh, with, you know, crisis and, and, and somebody's bleeding out and it's very stressful. And then we get this sort of expansive. Lo- yeah, lots of sun, long... you know. Yeah, yeah. Right. So it's it's a little bit of a relief. And also, Thirst Corner, 90s <laughs> Tim Roth. Yeah, wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> Also, like, so this is, this is the, uh, the perpetual gay, uh, the perpetual gay, do I want him or do I want to look like him? Because, like, 90s Tim Roth is pretty much what I always wanted to look like. And also, mm, (laughs) so pretty. So I love that, like, floppy 90s hair. You never see him with the floppy 90s hair. And he's kind of skinny, but he's got really nice shoulders. He's He's got the leather jacket. He's got the little, like, white tank top. Mm. Anyway, uh, that's that's it for my thirst corner. Uh, <laughs> you don't. There's not a lot of women in this. I, no, you know, I, there's no women like in main parts at all. It's just the woman who shoots him and uh, yeah, talk about a yeah, woman at see, one point. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you see, you see the waitress briefly, and then there's a woman who shoots Mr. Orange, and we'll get to that. Yeah. So we get this really long like back. You know, background sequence where we find out Tim Roth is an undercover cop and we see him talking to a guy who I guess is another cop, um, but they're both planes closed and and don't look like cops. And they're sitting in in another diner um, and having a conversation about it. And he's saying like, so he's saying basically I'm ready to go undercover and I'm going to get Joe Cabot on this this heist. And, and I've you know, I've got it all planned out. And um and he mentions an informant, a criminal informant that he knows that he's like, oh, this is a good guy. And the guy he's talking to, uh, played by Randy Brooks, I think, who's the, the other officer and is kind of training him, says, like, no, 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 he's not a good guy. Don't trust him. Yeah. Right. Um, and so then we see. Uh, so Tim Roth is uh, rehearsing. He's got like a joke that's like a script that he's rehearsing. Yeah. And we see him rehearsing the joke and he's standing on like a rooftop. With the the other officer, uh, Holdaway, I think is his name. Yeah. Um, standing on a rooftop rehearsing this script, um, and and it's a story about a, a you know a, a drug deal gone wrong. And it, it's a funny it even story. Really go and, wrong. And we, it just more went like awkward for a couple of seconds. Yeah, I guess it doesn't go wrong. It just goes awkward. Yeah. And, and it's a good it's a good story. And we see him rehearsing, rehearsing, and rehearsing. And then it mer- it's like a montage. We see him rehearsing it with that, with his officer. And, and it's a nerve-wracking because he's telling this story about going and buying pot. And, and he's got this connection. And he's got to get the pot and all this stuff. And then, then he'll throw in details. And then Joe Cabot will be like, wait a second. Why why was it like this? Or why did you yeah. do that? Or wh- wh- what was that about? Or how'd that happen? Um, and it's like, you, it's like, is he going to 
flake? Is he going to freak out? And he just like dismisses it and keeps going on with the story. Right. And the story is that basically, for one reason or another, he winds up with a big bag of weed in a train station or something, and he goes in the bathroom yeah. carrying the big bag of weed, and he walks in, and there's like a, a half dozen cops in there with a drug dog that's yeah, barking yeah, at yeah. him, right? And and long story short, he keeps his cool and gets out of there. But um, but it, it's great because even though we know that, like, obviously the whole thing is fictional, not only is the whole thing fictional, this is a fictional story within the fictional movie. This yeah. is a story that we know this character is making up. Um, or rather has had handed to him to make that's made up. And yet it's still tense. Like it's still when you see yeah. this like complete fantasy sequence of him in the men's room with this drug dog barking at him, it is still terrifying. And, and it's <laughs> funny, like when you hear the cop talking, he's like his story that he's talking about is like totally about like almost like doing some police brutality on a dude because he's like oh this uh this guy's in his car and you know I, I tell him like hey buddy like you know put your hands on the dashboard and he's like oh, okay and he just starts like reaching for the glove compartment or something like that like despite what the police officer is telling him which seems like a weird thing it's like you think you just do what he said but yeah he was just reaching for his fucking uh, wallet or something like that and it's just like yeah well no i mean i think the the implication is that the guy was trying to to sneakily get his handgun out of the glove compartment. Yeah, uh, like, that's what the cop was expecting because he was like, hey, buddy. But then when he actually, uh, I think it's like when he actually, because his girlfriend, he mentions the girlfriend or something like that, and eventually the, the, the glove compartment is open, and it's like, oh, he was just, the motherfucker was just getting his wallet. It's like, oh, I was about to fucking waste his ass. He didn't know yeah, how close yeah. he was. You know, and so it's just like, just the cops flippantly going like, oh, yeah, I was about to fucking waste that motherfucker. You know, like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So they're, yeah, the cops are like basically just nonchalantly talking about shooting people yeah. while this guy is sitting here getting barked at. Right, and it's, and again, it's all like, you know, we know that this story is not real in any sense, even yeah. in the universe uh-huh. of the movie, and it's still really well shot. It's almost like in this kind of slight slow motion, mm-hmm. um, and and there's like lingering close-ups on every detail of him, like washing his hands very slowly. Oh yeah, and, I- using soap. and he puts the he puts the bag of weed down on the sink, like right behind one of the cops. Yeah, oh, and it's just, oh. And I love the specific thing because, uh, you know, he says, like, right down to, like, the specific elements of, like, you know, what type of soap they use. Blah, blah, blah. And it was funny, like, in that moment when he bends down to, like, because, you know, they're saying all these details, notice them, so now I'm noticing it. And when he bends down to wash his hands, it the thing that he washes his hands with is the most annoying type of uh, uh, faucet ever. Do you remember these faucets where it's like you had to push down on the thing to get the water to go? But, you know, you yeah. can't wash your... You can only do one hand at a time with these... Like, yeah, what like they're supposed to. The way those are supposed to work is you're supposed to push it and then it's supposed to give you a few seconds yeah, of water and you have to worked. keep pushing it. But, like... But, yeah, but, like, they... I think the problem is that... I think the way that it works is, like... It's supposed to sort of, it's like one of those devices that like a hydraulic device that slows down a door closing Yeah. and it's supposed to like come back up very slowly, but then that wears out and it comes back up too fast and that's why you have to keep leaning on it. Right. And so like, yeah. And so when you see him do it, he just like does it over his hands like really quick. Like he does it on one hand, does it on one hand. It's like, oh yeah, those shitty things that you just had to fucking deal with. Those sucked. God damn it. I'm so glad we're away from that. Yeah. I've I've been in public bathrooms that have had that type of sink, like, recently, like, in the last year. Yeah, there's still a thing, unfortunately. Um, But, but, yeah, yeah, you have to kind of, like, get your elbow and then, like, bend your (laughs) hands. Right! Like, Um, oh, my God! But anyway, so so he, you know, he gets through telling this funny story about buying, you know, a bunch of weed to sell and, um, and seems to have won over the you know the these these thieves these organized criminals and gets in on the on the job um and then we get back to the present where he's he's bleeding out um the cops the cop has been yeah. had his ear cut off and is doused in gasoline mr blonde is dead and then um well and, and like so yeah the cop reveals that he does know that uh the, uh, right, he talks. Right, he talks to the cop and and Mr. Orange, and they they've met and and they yeah. And, and I find I other. find that detail like that especially you know threw me off like as a kid because like 
I, as a kid, I remember thinking like, oh, it's just a police officer. The fact that they're torturing him, they, they just pulled like an officer. He might not actually be, you know, in on what's going on. But it's like, oh, but the fact is that he did. He did have information. He did know who was the right cop, but he wasn't going to spill mm-hmm. it. Like, that's the... The, the, oh the yeah, yeah. Like that me, actually, right? I I hadn't quite put that together, yeah. but yeah, you're right. Like he like he very much like didn't didn't tell on Mr. Orange. Yeah, even though he um, didn't know. Yeah, that's what I find like. Yeah. Doubly. Oh, I forgot to, to say so. Yeah, I forgot to say so. Like the really important thing that we see then in the last part of that flashback is we see Tim Roth get shot. We see what happens where he. Oh, yeah. um yeah. yeah, they're fleeing the scene and they go to try and carjack a, a lady who's sitting in, in at a light or something. Um, and she just immediately pulls out a pistol and shoots him in the gut. And then yeah. he falls backward, pops up and shoots her in the head. Yeah, I think. In the head. Um, and it's like <laughs> and it's like on the one hand, like you can see like somebody shoots you. You're holding the gun yeah. like that. It's understandable that you're. But at the same time, it's like, oh, man. Ooh, yeah, now, realistically, <laughs> knowing the LAPD, <laughs> right. If he had survived, he oh, wouldn't get in trouble for that. Yeah, but you had to do what you had to do. But in the line of morally <laughs> in movie land moral logic he was done then because morally we know he's not gonna come back from shooting a civilian right yeah yeah uh, you know and, and, also, and, and i'm using that in big quotes i really it actually is a huge thing that pisses me off when people refer to non-cops as civilians because cops are civilians mm. they're not the military they're civilians right. anyway and, and but, also it's just so, the, the fact of the matter is like as the movie progresses at first you you'd be trying to figure out who the rat is and you know there is that misdirect of the fact that well the guy who's got shot can't be the rat you know like because why would a right police yeah it's shoot? yeah you know it's supposed to be playing on mm-hmm. that initially right like and so, yeah. and I actually couldn't remember at first and at first I was thinking maybe it was Mr. Pink because you know he's coming in and going who's the rat who's the rat there's a rat we gotta uh, figure it out yeah, which of yeah, course yeah, if you yeah. want to deflect uh, deflect attention right. from yourself oh um, my God Judas and the Messiah Judas and the Black Messiah uh, that movie we reviewed I, I reviewed it with Will the Greatest. And th- there was a point of uh, there was a point of that in the movie where it was like, oh yeah, these black you know organizations and this one dude is kind of sitting in the sixties to sort of disrupt them. And one of the big things he's saying is like, oh hey, maybe you're a rat, maybe you're a rat, duh. Like to throw that out first. <laughs> and so now that no one's thinking mm-hmm. about me, he yeah. who smelt it dealt it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um. So so we see now that like not only is he physically fucked because he's probably gonna bleed out and die, but he's morally fucked because he's shot this woman who was just trying to defend herself from a carjacking. Yeah. Um. But then we and ca- oh, what are you gonna say? Oh, I was gonna say. So then he has this conversation with the cop. He has this exchange, um, and then the the bad guys bust back in. Yeah. Now for me, like I never understood why this defense couldn't have been at like i understand morally i mean uh not morally but like for uh uh nice guy eddie's you know um his defense of mr blonde right it's like hey i know this guy why would he betray us that doesn't make any sense because you know uh uh mr orange tries to say like oh yeah you know he was uh he shot he tortured the cop and then he was gonna like you know fry him you know what i'm saying like um but then nice guy eddie goes like oh what this cop right here and you know just plugs him in in the chest and he's like, well, I don't give a fuck about no cop. But then I it's like, I was also thinking, but like, but wait a minute. He was going to set him on fire. Like, wouldn't that have possibly burned the whole yeah, goddamn but, place down and, and well, alerted people? Like, you could, like, I don't understand why he couldn't have used that to his advantage. And be like, dude, he has gasoline on him. He was going to burn the whole place and shoot you guys. I, you know what I, I mean? I think like, that at that point, I think at that point, no defense would have mattered because, and this was a good thing that was established early on is when Mr. Blonde, like, for, when we see his flashback where he comes in and he's talking to Joe, like, it's not just that he's an employee, an ex-employee they liked. Like, he and Nice Guy Eddie are, like, rolling around and wrestling on the true, floor true. like brothers. They're, like, yeah, they're, yeah. that is, like, family-level love. They go back. They're, yeah, they're, like, brothers. And, like, this man went to jail for four years for his dad. Like, that is, like, if you've got that level of love for somebody and and you come in and somebody shot them to death, it doesn't matter what that person said. Very like, true, if right. somebody, like... You know, like if if I walked into somewhere and I saw you dead on the floor and somebody's telling me, but you don't understand he was about to do blah, blah, blah. I don't give a shit what that person is saying, you know, yeah, <laughs> like, right, sorry yeah. to put the bad. Like, I hope I'm not no, putting any like badness true. on you. But, like, but, 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 but you like, know what I'm saying? Like, just to elevate it. If, if I had poured gasoline on a tied up dude, 
would at least want to hear me out. Well, but you're also not a person who would pour gasoline on somebody, whereas Mr. Blonde is a person. Yeah, right, and I right. feel like and nice see, guy yeah, that's knows him well enough okay, to know he see, would pour. Yeah, right. And that's the thing of it, right? It's just like, you know, this Blue's a goddamn uh, Mr. Mr. Blue. Mr. Blonde. Uh, Mr. Blonde, excuse me. Uh, he's a goddamn monster, but he has loyalty, so he's rewarded. And that's all that matters to my man. He's their even monster. He's a, fucking... he's a monster, but he's their monster. Yeah, exactly. You know? And that's what I think is so interesting that, like, you know, it all like all throughout the movie, you have little moments where they'll go, like, you know, even though, again, Mr. Blonde, definitively, monster, awful guy, but they'll go, like, you know, they'll have moments where, like, well, why are you guys uh, acting all out of sorts, you know, whenever they're arguing? Like, why are you guys going all crazy? You're acting like a bunch of niggers. Like, oh, well, you want to act like some niggers? And I, and oh, yeah, there was, a, there was like, some, like... Yeah, and, spicy language. Um, but, well, and, and you know, it could be, like, a literally, like, an entire episode just talking about Quentin yeah. Tarantino and the N-word. Yeah. But, but, like, for me, what I always thought was interesting, at least, like, when I came, um, when I first, like, came to his movies, right, like... Because uh, I because I watch Spike Lee and Quentin Tarantino's movies at the same time. Like I love both of them. And when I, you know when I found out that there was like that you know very real tension between them, and I was like, oh no, like I like you, both of you guys. But um, I always at least how it always hit me when I heard like you know Quentin Tarantino kind of like in his movies like having specifically white characters saying the n-word right like that's kind of like the big thing specifically i remember thinking back to like um do you remember eddie murphy i can't remember if we talked about this before um do you remember eddie murphy uh he had his stand-up special in the 80s and he was talking about how like yeah you know like uh you know like white people used to say nigga all the time and they kind of don't do that anymore uh, well i guess not around me so i guess i wouldn't know <laughs> Right. Oh yeah, you we did talk about it cuz you were saying like it made you feel like oh I'm I'm getting to see them doing it, you yeah. know. And, and I'm seeing like yeah, it's that feeling of like cuz you know growing up with white people having enough sense in the 90s and early 2000s, right? Like, you know, the the you know, people with bigoted bones in their bodies, they at least know that they should be ashamed of just being out loud about it, right? By that by that point, yeah. right? And I think what's Yeah, and as a kid, like, that makes perfect sense that you'd have that feeling. But now, like, Whoa, you can just go kid. on Twitter. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now you can just go on Twitter and see right. people Oh, say, yeah, they definitely still slurs. say it. Yeah, but especially at the time, it, it felt like a bit of a watershed moment. Because it was like, when you look at Hollywood movies, like, you know, people don't say, like, white, you know, characters don't say the N-word like that, right? Because it's like, this is Hollywood. Hey, come on now, tone it down a little bit. Even though the racism and the sentiments and all of that is still there because you see it play out in yeah. the narratives and all of that type And of it's shit, right? realistic that these, like, bad guys yes. would... Yeah, right. I mean, they even, like, like start out, like, shit. early... Yeah. In the in the diner scene when Steve Buscemi's talking about he doesn't he doesn't tip and nice guy and he's, he's the like, main one you wouldn't say that <laughs> oh lord yeah like yeah and like and and I think in some ways like it's it's a little refreshing because I think it's very easy to be like oh look at these cool badass bad guys and they're so cool mm. and they're you know in their suits and they're holding up a jewelry store but you know I I feel like he is saying you know. He's saying here, these are real. No, like these are bad people. They're not. Yeah. They're not good people. Like they're gonna do shitty right. things. It, like hold up jewelry stores and also say racist shit. Like, yeah, it's like it's, these, <laughs> these aren't too like, like yeah much of different uh, uh, like you know things. Yeah, because <laughs> I think there's a tendency kind. to. I, I think there's a tendency to romanticize in in film. Like you get like the sort of romanticized criminal of like oh, particularly sure. talking about like violent crimes or crimes that like genuinely like hurt people like people killing people there's a tendency to romanticize that kind of person and be like well yeah sure they just went and shot three people but also they're really polite and suave mm. and i think making them because you know racism like saying racist shit is like it's a more sort of um real like not that you know, shooting people isn't something that happens in the world, but it's like, like, I feel like most people you know, have just... heard somebody say something yeah. racist yeah. and gone, you know, most people have heard somebody say something racist and, you know, when, so if like they're doing the bad shit that like your shitty uncle does yeah. that makes you go, Ugh, then it's not going to have the same effect on doing a bad thing that you've never seen somebody do in person that you might romanticize. Right, does that make right. sense? Yeah. It makes it's sense. like, it's like making them more, it's bringing them down to earth and just being like, no, these are just literally just bad people. They're not, 
you know, they're not suave. They're not cool. They're just literally bad. <laughs> yeah, these are men who, you know, the Dragon Society, you know, uh, uh, cheating around things to get money and live in the fast way because they don't give a fuck about other people. And that shows in their actions as well as their language, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, that's what, it's, that's what it's about, you know, when you hear them, like, talk that way. And it's like, it felt like, like every scene... Like, almost every scene, uh, what, like, with, like, Steve Buscemi, whenever they're, like, trying to bring up a fight or talk about something, it's always, like, uh, niggas this, niggas that. Like, in the scene when, the, when they're fighting, it's all about how, like, oh, you just got out of jail, and, oh, uh, 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 uh the scene in the office with, uh, 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 Chris Penn and, uh, uh Mr. Blonde, where he's just like, oh, uh, you know, you're talking like a nigger now, is because of all that, uh, nigger dick that's been pounded into you, and the semen's gotten to your brain, it's just like, Jesus Christ, like, this fucking, like, you know, the, of course, the gay jokes as well, right? Like, you know, um, but yeah, again, this is how, like, these people, these types of people talk, because, you know, they just don't give a shit, and they just, like, they take that as, uh, uh, you know, just playful language, which is, you know, what, what what's the word, you know, like, you, you say how you really are, you know what I mean? Like, to a certain extent, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah, I, I don't know where I'm fucking going with this, but basically the the, the the thesis that I wanted to get to is that, like, while, yeah, it's like, you know, it's definitely not, like, uh, perfect in every time Quentin Tarantino, like, does it. I do think it's odd that, like, yeah, he'll have his character saying the N-word specifically. Like, I can get how that could feel a bit. Like, a, uh, like why do you want to say it, though? But, like, on the sense of trying to be hyper-real about, like, these types of people, these modern white men, you know what I'm saying? Like, like that is how they talk for real. If you watch the average like Hollywood movie, they're gonna cut, you know, swipe that clean because that looks bad. But if you're trying to like mm-hmm. really show these scum of the earth type of dudes, yeah, they say that. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. that's what I kind of yeah. think, right? Like, yeah, it, yeah, it is. And and I'm sure there's still, I mean, there's you know the poster of them looking all cool in their suits, and you know there course. was still some of that romanticizing yeah yeah, from like the audience and the you know but the film itself i would say doesn't romanticize these which is always the question i feel like it's the perpetual it's the perpetual issue with okay yeah well people don't pay attention and then we have to value the people who didn't pay attention in their interpretation of the film even though you know what i'm saying like don't you get that yeah i mean (laughs) it's it's hard because i think like the question is basically how hard does an artist have to try to not make a bad person look cool? Right. That's the question. That's a, it's a real question because like, I, you don't I want watched, to hold someone's hand, right? So, like, like yeah. so you know, okay, so like we both like Rick and Morty, right? We both enjoy Rick and Morty, <laughs> and also yeah. we all know that there are a lot of douchey fans <laughs> who think that Rick is the coolest person in the world, yeah. and they admire Rick and they think they're like Rick and all that crap, right? And, you know, for the longest time, I was like, oh, my God, like, how can you not see that Rick is just a sad douchebag? Right. And, so you know, right. But I watched and I I feel bad because I cannot remember. Um, I'm going to try and find this right now because I want to, like, actually say their name. Um, so the video was basically it was about it was this person who was saying he, he said essentially he said, you know, those fans that we all can't stand of Rick and Morty who think that Rick is the coolest and they think and they admire Rick and all that, they're not misreading the text because the text of Mm, mm. the show is that Rick is cool and Rick is always right and Rick is smarter than everybody. And even though, as a person with a decent moral compass, you can sit back and say, like, come on, obviously Rick is not somebody you should emulate and you can enjoy the show without thinking Rick is somebody you should emulate. The text of the show is that Rick is smarter than everybody. Rick is almost always right and, yeah. and way, outsmarts way, people. Yeah, the way uh, uh, the course of events shape out, he is right to and do that, blah, 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 you know. Yeah, and, and that and the basically it kind of presents, and even if this isn't the, the creator's intent, it kind of presents this idea of nice is stupid, mean is cool and that other characters like for example um like summer and like um oh my god i'm blanking on his beth Beth, Uh, like beth and summer are at their smartest and rightest when they're being mean Mm. and that when they're being nice or when anybody's being nice is when they're at their stupidest and it it, yeah perfect example the the wedding squanchers episode where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, 
I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I want to let my guard down at a special moment because it's someone's, you know, wedding. And then, you know, even though the whole time he's like reason why he's, you know, you know, closed off is because he doesn't want to open himself up because that could be, you know, that vulnerability could cost him. And then when he does, something goes off that actually like, you know, ruins the whole wedding and stuff like that. So it's like, oh, God damn, well, then I fucking shouldn't have, you know, and so it's like right. narratively you know, he, is, he is rewarded yeah. as being considered have would have taken the right actions if he had continued thinking the way he wanted to, you know, like that sort of thing. Right, right. Or like, or, you know, like with Fight Club, for example, like, you know, watching the movie as a 30-something as opposed to a 20-something, or even, you know, when I was like a, a teenager in my early 20s, mm-hmm. like, it is a different experience because looking at it now, like, it's like, Tyler Durden is gross. <laughs> like, yeah, oh my God, like their house is full of standing water, yeah, you know, like there's nothing admirable. And then, you know, and then, and it, and then it's like. they're not doing anything cool. Yeah. Like the, when you really look at what they're doing on a like day by day basis, it's like, what, who would want to actually live this life where you just beat up dudes and I'm like, you not have a job. Are they just in this abandoned place and they just beat well, up guys? And, and then, and this is one, and this is another, okay, so this is one where I actually can cite the YouTuber. This is Maggie Mae Fish oh, yeah, made a great. video where she basically posited, like, you know, because, again, people say, like, oh, come on, you're not supposed to think Tyler Durden's cool. Anybody who thinks Tyler Durden is cool is missing the point. And, like, obviously it's about how this is bad. And Maggie Mae Fish um, you know, posited essentially like, no, like Tyler Durden is presented as being cool. And in fact, um, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a good, like, go, go look up Maggie Mae Fish on mm. Fight Club. I don't, I'm not going to even like say too much. Like it's, it's worth watching, but essentially, you know, there are a lot of these works that are enjoyable on many different levels that have a lot of fans often young men who think that a really awful character is cool and want to emulate that character. And then you have people, you know, the, us older and wiser folk who who sit and go, oh, you silly kids thinking that Tyler Durden or Rick Sanchez is cool. You're wrong. You're reading it wrong. But often, often they're not actually doing an unreasonable reading. And yeah. often, like, that character is presented as being cool. So with, it, with it's, Reservoir yeah, it's Dogs... it's about understanding the nuances of how that conversation unfolds if you have the maturity to understand what that what it means for that character to act that way in that situation, you know? Right, like, and so then yeah. we have the question of, you know, given that many people who watch movies are under 25, right, you know, yeah. many people, not to be ageist, and I'm, there are lots of smart people under 25, but, uh, you know, I was dumb under 25 not having the put life it that experience. Way. Yeah, um, yeah. but yeah like given that many people who watch movies are either young and just haven't had a lot of life experience yet or are just frankly not that smart or aren't paying that much attention mm-hmm. where is the author's responsibility to um you know where's the author's responsibility to not make somebody bad look cool and frankly like it's hard because you want people in your movie to be cool yeah, and like, you want, you want... And you also yeah you want to do cool art you know like yeah like okay we could have rick be a character who figures out how to be nice really early but like ah but come on then we gotta have you know we gotta have crow horse and we gotta have him do all this other shit you know like mm-hmm. <laughs> then he won't be able to have yeah, these adventures because it... the shit would be solved already you know well and just from like a very you know sp- even if we're not talking about like sort of the way characters are presented in dialogue or the way the plot unfolds around them or anything, because you've got characters, um, I'm having, I'm hard pressed thinking of an example right this second, but like you've got characters, I mean, heck, arguably even in this movie where even like the plot, the text is not making them look good. Okay. Like Walter White, like when he says, I am the one who knocks is a, is like sniveling middle-aged man trying to threaten his wife right when you really look at what's happening it's like wait (laughs) right it's like there's nothing cool about that but people will take shit and try to make it cool and there's only so much control an artist has but yeah it's just hard it's like where is where's the line because i think on the other hand like artists are not um artists are not it's not an artist's job not to your teachers, morally right? like, instruct everyone. Yeah. yeah like, okay. Um, so I, I've been in a fucking Nirvana rabbit hole for the last <laughs> two weeks or something, but okay. So the, the, the song Polly, right. Mm. Was it, it was in response to a story about 
this guy who had kidnapped and raped a young girl. Oh, and the man. song is from the um, is from the rapist's perspective. It's it's like from the rapist. Well, yeah, but so here's the thing. So Cobain is quoted as saying. Um, and this is a sentiment that has been echoed many, many times now. I think in the 90s it was something people weren't saying as much, even though now it's something people say all the time. Um, but, uh, you know, the problem with these anti-rape organizations is they're focusing so much on teaching women how not to be raped. Mm. And what we really need to do is teach men not to rape. Right. Um, and right. I had just actually right. watched a Nerd Writer video. I think it was right. Nerd Writer 1. Um, just oh, yeah, throwing out good. YouTubers all over the place today, but yeah, Nerd yeah. One yeah, pointed out that him. like <laughs> <Let's drop it. laughs> that Polly was, a, you know, a, an effort in that direction of teaching men not to rape because I think, um, you know, because it's it's empathetic, not in a way to try to let this person off the hook, but in a way to make you put yourself in his shoes and then go, mm. oh shit, this, this is something I could do. This yeah. is something I would be capable of doing because mm. I, you know, I, I think this is something I've been thinking about. Like a lot of sort of slogans around this, like for example, um, for the longest time, you know, it was very common for people to say like rape isn't rape is not about sex. Rape is not sexual at all. Rape is not about sex in any way, shape or form. It's about power. And it's like, yeah. okay, I could see why somebody's saying that, especially when you're coming from a culture where rape victims are being told, like, you've lost your virginity, you've right. been sullied, you know, that was your experience, that was your first experience with sex, you know, or that was your experience yeah. with sex. Like, that's, you know, obviously, like, I can see coming from a culture where rape is treated as a sex act that it, that the victim's participating in, I can right. see why people were saying rape is not about sex, it's about power. However... If your goal is to tell young men, to teach young men not to rape, you have to admit that very often the motivation for raping is I wanted to have sex with this person and right. they didn't want to, but I wanted to anyway. And that is important because there was a survey. We're getting so far off track, but this yeah. is important. Okay. So there was a survey a while back where they surveyed a bunch of uh, college students, uh, male college students, and said like, would you rape a girl? And they all said no, right? And then they said, would you do this? Would you like, you know, would you do this? If a girl said no, would you kind of keep touching her and, until she started saying, you know, or would you do this? Would you do that? Or would you kind of like, um, you know, try and do something before she had a chance to say no, you know, basically things that amounted to rape but without using the, the word. And, yeah. and a huge, right. Or or just frankly out out, out and out violent rape at some points but without mm. using that word. Right. And very often there was like literally a majority of these boys said, yeah, I'd do that or I have done that. And so if you're trying to, like, yeah. right. And so if we're saying rape is something that only the you know inhuman monsters do and it doesn't have anything to do with sex it's just these mustache twirling snidely whiplash villains who just want to have power over you yeah, these guys um, who come out of the dark in, in dark you know, alleys and just yeah, yeah right and if you have a 19 year old guy who is thinking well i'd never do that i don't want to have power over somebody what's that about but i'm really horny and i really want to have sex with my girlfriend and she kind of doesn't seem into it but i really want to that's you have to tell him you have to tell him yeah that feeling what you're do what you're doing right there that's rape and so i think it is really important um to to do stuff like that anyway so that was a big old fucking tangent but my point was that oh. so cobain wrote polly oh, yeah. as an anti-rape song as as a song whose purpose was to try to make men hear it and feel like oh my god i could be that monster i better watch myself right yeah. later a group of boys gang raped a girl while singing that song Ugh. and Cobain found out about that and was, of course, horrified and sickened, you know. Um, but the the question is there, and, and now I'm not saying that Kurt Cobain is responsible for that gang rape because of right, writing that, Polly, obviously. Yeah, right. That's the but, 90s version of uh, thinking with the culture where we were like, Ooh, right. Uh, but, yeah. but this artist did feel, you know, somewhat responsible, at, at least mm. enough to be like horrified and feel somewhat guilty. Right. Um, because of that happening, and obviously no artist wants their work to be misinterpreted in, in such a way that inspires people to do horrible shit. Culture, yeah. Right. And now, 
getting back after a 15 minute tangent to Reservoir Dogs, I don't think that there's any like serious concern that people are going to watch Reservoir Dogs and then go and oh, like um, rob, <laughs> rob a diamond store. However, I mean, you could argue that it makes gun violence look cool because mm-hmm. there's like, you know, so this last scene that we're just coming up on where Nice Guy D comes in, sees his basically brother dead on the floor, pulls mm-hmm. a gun on, uh, Pulls the gun on Mr. Orange because Mr. Orange shot him. Well, no, and... what, what first happens is uh, so the old man's aiming at uh, Mr. Orange, blade dude on the ground, and Harvey Keitel saying, Don't shoot that gun at him or I'll shoot you. And then Sean, P- I mean, uh, uh, Chris Penn is aiming the nice gun. Nice Guy Eddie is, yeah, nice guy is Eddie. aiming his gun at Mr. White for yeah, shooting, for aiming at his now. dad. And uh, right. Mr. Pink the whole time was like, guys, what are you doing? Like, let's, yeah, let's so Mr. Them. Pink, who is the only one with an ounce of self-preservation, apparently, he, he, like, has like... He runs under we, the ramp. <laughs> right, we see him like hiding under the ramp. Now, here's the thing. Mr. Pink doesn't look cool hiding under the ramp. Yeah, <laughs> but he's, uh, he's alive, goddamn it. <laughs> Yeah, Mr. Pink doesn't look cool hiding under the ramp, but he's alive, right? So these <laughs> guys the who all end up getting hide. dead because they all shoot each other at the exact same moment. And again, cool fucking sequence, right? Yeah, and but actually Harvey like, Keitel gets off two shots as he's going down. He he, he hits, does, yeah. yeah. And then and then you have this moment of sort of tragedy where Harvey Keitel is cradling Mr. Orange in his oh, lap. Yeah, it's such a great and, so this is moment. Great. <laughs> The ending is really good because, yeah, so, like, the the camera's focusing and it pulls in really tight so that we only see just, like, we ended up, like, not even seeing Mr. Orange, who's in Harvey Keitel's lap. So it's it's on Mr. White, and we hear Mr. Orange, he's saying, he's saying I'm a cop, I'm a cop, Larry, uh, like, confessing so to Larry. Sorry. like yeah. Because the whole reason that Larry, like, got in that shootout was defending Mr. Orange, saying, there's no way this guy's a cop. Yeah. There's no way this guy's a cop. Gets shot and and Mr. Orange is like I'm a cop, it's like, so oh, it's tragedy. Fuck. And Mr. White and Mr. White shoots Mr. Orange in the head. But before he does, he's like holding the gun to Mr. Orange's head and crying. And the yeah. cops bust in and they're all like holding the gun on Mr. White and screaming, "Drop it! Drop it! Drop it!" Yeah. And he shoots Mr. Orange and then gets shot dead by the cops. Yeah. Um. You know, the next thing you hear is uh the, another uh, silly '70s pop song to to take us out. <laughs> yeah, which which song is it at the end? I can't remember. Yes. Oh God, I remember because it's such a black, it's such a black humor like gallows joke because you know it's about a stomach ache and and Tim Roth's character spent the whole movie dying of a gut shot. Uh, yeah. God damn it. Uh, oh man. Well. uh Yeah. Yeah, I think this is definitely a, a recommend from both of us. Uh, you should definitely check. Yeah, it out. no, it's a good movie. It's tight. It's fun. Yeah, it's ninety well minutes constructed. Yeah, and it's um yeah, and I think it's, I'm sure knowing Tarantino that there were a bunch of like, cinematic film buff references that I didn't get. Um, oh, for sure. Like I'm sure the plot is a direct reference to some. Uh, you know, Japanese mafia movie from the late 70s or something to that effect, you know? <laughs> so this has been the Review New Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to hear all our other exclusive episodes, be sure to check them out on Patreon at patreon.com slash rapcritic, where you can also, of course, get access to early rap critic episodes. You get to vote on song reviews and join the RC Patreon Discord. Plus, if you enjoy the show, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever your podcasts are listened to. It's super helpful and exposes us to other people trying to find content like this on the ever-changing algorithm out there. So we'd super appreciate it. Definitely follow to keep up with the show. And until next time, I'm DJ. I'm Evan. And you put the lime in the coconut, drink it all up. You put the lime in the coconut, drink it all up. You put the lime in the coconut. They called the doctor, woke him up, said, Doctor, is there nothing I can take? I say, Doctor, to relieve this flipper ache. I said, Doctor, ain't there nothing I can take? I say, Doctor, to relieve this flipper ache. Now let me get this straight. You put the lime in the coconut, you drank them both up. You put the lime in the coconut, you drank them both up. You put the lime in the coconut, you drank them both up. You put the lime in the coconut, you call your doctor, woke him up, said, Doctor, ain't there nothing?